The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister, Mr. Clive Betts. One, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm sure, sure that the whole House will wish to join me in sending our deepest condolences to the families and friends of senior aircraftman Ryan Tomlin from No. 2 Squadron RAF Regiment. It's clear from the tributes paid by his RAF colleagues that he was a determined young man with immense potential. His service and his sacrifice to our nation will never be forgotten. Members of the House will also have seen the reports that the talented and respected foreign correspondent of the Sunday Times, Marie Colvin, has been killed from the bombing in Syria. This is a desperately sad reminder of the risks that journalists take to inform the world of what is happening and the dreadful events in Syria, and our thoughts should be with her family and with her friends. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Clive Betts. Can I associate myself with the Prime Minister's comments about our brave troops uh, and also the brave journalists who report uh, their activities as well? The Prime Minister said in the past that one of his main priorities is fighting crime. Can he explain, therefore, why, since the election, there has been a cut in over 4,000 in the number of frontline police officers? In South Yorkshire, the police helicopter, which actually was responsible for apprehending over 700 criminals, is going to be scrapped by the police minister against the advice of the chief constable. How can he explain these matters, which clearly indicate to the public that crime will rise when, when it is simply another broken promise by this Prime Minister. To the Honourable Gentleman. The Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On the issue of the helicopter, I know there are talks underway between the um, South Yorkshire Police and ACPO, and I am confident that helicopter coverage will be maintained. On the issue he raises, I would make the point that actually recorded crime is down uh, under this Government. And also, if you look at the figures from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, they believe there will be more police invisible policing roles this March than there were a year ago. Sajid Javid. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This Monday was meant to be a happy reunion for pupils at Alf Church Middle School following their half-term break. Instead, it turned out to be a day of mourning for the school and the entire community because of the news of a coach crash in France, which claimed the life of a much-loved local teacher, Mr Peter Rippington, and left many school children seriously injured. Will the Prime Minister join me in expressing sympathy for all those affected and for those that are still in France and being treated a swift recovery and a speedy return home? I am very grateful to my honourable friend for raising this desperately, desperately sad case. I know that Peter Rippington was much respected in the local community and at the school and will be hugely missed. So the thoughts and sincere condolences, I'm sure, of everyone in the House will be with my honourable friend's constituents and everyone who's been affected. I can tell him that uh, our consular staff in France continue to provide support to all those still in France. Our ambassador, Sir Peter Ricketts, has visited passengers in hospital and is liaising with the local authorities, and we'll do everything we can with the French authorities to get people safely home. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to senior aircraftman Ryan Tomlin from No. 2 Squadron, the RAF Regiment. He died bravely and courageously serving our country, and our thoughts are with his family and friends. Mr Speaker, we are also thinking today about the tragic death of Marie Colvin. She was a brave and tireless reporter across many continents and in many difficult situations. She was also an inspiration to women in her profession. Her reports in the hours before her her death 
showed her work at our finest, and again our thoughts today are with her family and friends. Mr Speaker, on Monday the Prime Minister held his emergency NHS summit and managed to exclude, and managed to exclude the main organisations representing the following professions. The GPs, the nurses, the midwives, the pathologists, the psychiatrists, the physiotherapists, and just for good measure, the radiologists. How can he possibly think it's a good idea to hold a health summit which excludes the vast majority of people who work in the NHS? What I want to do is safeguard our NHS. Now, we, on this side of the House, we are putting more money into the NHS money that they are specifically they're specifically committed to taking out but let's be frank money alone is not going to be enough we have got to meet the challenge of an aging population more expensive treatments more people on long term conditions and that is why we got to reform the nhs my summit was about those organisations including clinical commissioning groups up and down the country 8200 GP practices that want to put these reforms in place. So he's got no answer to his ridiculous summit, which excluded the vast majority of people who work in the medical profession. Let's remind ourselves what the Prime Minister said just a few short months ago during his so-called listening exercise. He said change, if it is to really work, should have the support of people who work in our NHS. We have to take our nurses and doctors with us. Now he can't even be in the same room as the doctors and nurses. Doesn't that tell, doesn't that tell him that he's lost the confidence of those who work in our National Health Service? What, what I want to know, Mr Speaker, when is he going to ask a question about the substance of the reforms? He doesn't want to ask. He doesn't want to ask about choice because they used to be in favour of choice, but they won't back choice in the bill. He doesn't want to ask a question about competition. They used to favour competition, but now they won't support competition in the bill. They used to support GPs being put in charge of health budgets. They want they back that. They won't support it, even though now it is in the bill. Why not ask a serious question? And why not, incidentally, incidentally? As we're being kept here to vote at seven o'clock on the publication of the risk registers, why don't you ask a question about that? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, let me just Mr Speaker, if he doesn't think it's a serious question about his exclusion of the vast majority of people who work in our nature, but, but he shouldn't worry. He shouldn't worry. Order. The House must calm down. Tranquil and statesmanlike is the mode for which members should strive. Mr Ed Miliband. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come to the substance of his bill, Mr Speaker. But, but let, let me ask him this question, because this is a very important question. There were people who attended the summit and who expressed deep concerns and who expressed deep concerns about his bill, even those who were invited to his summit. So following his health summit, can he tell us what changes, if any, he is planning to make to his bill? 
Why doesn't he stop worrying about my diary and start worrying about his complete lack of substance? We are going ahead with these reforms because we think it's good for patients to have choice. We think it's good to have the involvement of independent and voluntary sectors in the NHS. We think it's good to have more emphasis on public health. That is why we are doing these reforms. Let me remind him of one thing, one thing that he used to believe. He used to believe this, and this was what his health secretary said. The private sector puts its capacity into the NHS for the benefit of NHS patients, which I think most people in this country would celebrate. They are now committed to a 5% cap on the private sector, which would mean hospitals like the Marsden Hospital sacking doctors, sacking nurses, closing wards. Now let me ask him again. We're here at 7 o'clock to vote on the risk register. Are you going to ask a question about it, or are you frightened of your own motion? I think it would be good if we could preserve some parliamentary manners in this place, and the Prime Minister will know that I'm not frightened of anything. Mr Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, nobody believes him, and nobody trusts him on the health service. Now, at the Homerton Hospital on Monday, I met with senior staff working in HIV services who explained to me how this bill will fragment and disrupt services. The health secretary should be quiet and listen to the people who work in the health service. If he'd done some listening, if he'd done some listening before, he should calm down, Mr. Speaker. He should calm down. They explained that HIV treatment is currently commissioned by one organisation, the Primary Care Trust. Under his plans, treatment will be commissioned by three organisations: the National Commissioning Board, the Clinical Commissioning Group, and the Health and Wellbeing Board. They said to me it will damage the world-class service they provide for patients. Now, why won't he listen to the people who actually know what they're talking about in the NHS? But if the right honourable gentleman is opposing other organisations that have expertise in AIDS and AIDS treatment taking part in the NHS, he'll be opposing the Terence Higgins Trust, who do an enormous amount to support HIV. The fact is, what we can see, Mr Speaker, is complete opportunism from the party opposite. They used to back choice. They used to back the independent sector. They used to back reform. I say to you, Mr Speaker, you don't save the NHS by opposing reform. You save the NHS by delivering reform. He doesn't even understand his own bill. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker let, let, me just, let me just explain to him. The question was about the fragmentation of commissioning and what the experts at the home... The, Opposition members are becoming overexcited. There's a long time to go, and I want to get to the bottom of the order paper. Mr. Ed Miliband. Let, let me say to the Health Secretary, I don't think the Prime Minister wants advice from him. Uh, uh, so, 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 so let, me, let me explain to him. It's about the fragmentation of commissioning. Right, you've got it. Okay, good. I'm glad you've got it. Maybe when you get up, you can answer the question. Now, Opposition, keep me out of it. I said it to the Prime Minister, I said it here, Mr. Ed Miliband. Now, the reason he's lost the. Now, the, now 
There's a reason he's lost the court. Order, or order, order, mem order, mem order. I say that to the Shadow Chancellor as well. Members might be enjoying order. Members might be enjoying themselves. I ask them to think of what the country thinks. Order of what the country thinks of how we conduct ourselves. Mr Ed Miller. He's lost the confidence of the professions and the NHS is because of the pr promises he made before the election. Will he now give people a straight answer to the question I asked him two weeks ago and admit he has broken his promise of no top-down reorganisation? Any longer, Mr Speaker, I think we'd have to put him on a waiting list for care. That, that took so long. He asks about, he asks about integration. He asks... He asked about integration. Let me just explain to him, so I don't suppose he's read the bill. Clause 22 and Clause 25 place a specific duty on key organisations to integrate health and social care. The bill is all about integration. But here we are, question five, and he still won't mention his vote on the risk registers. And I think I know why. Because I have here Labour's brief for this afternoon's debate. There's an excellent section explaining why you don't publish risk registers. <laughs> the second argument is particularly strong. It goes like this. Andy Burnham blocked the publication of the Department of Health's risk register in September 2009. There they are. Absolutely revealed as a bunch of rank opportunists, not fit to run opposition, not fit for government. I'll tell you what happened under the last Labour government. The lowest waiting times in history. More, more doctors and nurses than ever before. The highest patient satisfaction on the NHS. I'll match our record on the NHS with him any day of the week. And the, and the problem with this Prime Minister is that he asked people to trust him and he's betrayed that trust. The problem with this Prime Minister is that on the NHS, he thinks he's right and everyone else is wrong. It's become not a symbol of how his party has changed, but of his arrogance. I tell him this, this will become his poll tax. He should, he should listen to the public and he should drop this bill. Six, six questions and not a mention of the motion they put in front of the House tonight to put forward an argument and then not to back it up. That is an absence of leadership. Order. Members on both sides of the House are yelling at each other. It is rude. It is unfair on the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, and it should stop. The Prime Minister. Let me, let me just tell him what is actually happening in the health service under this government. Waiting times for outpatients, down. Waiting times for inpatients, down. Number of people waiting in total, down. Number of people waiting for more than a year has been halved under this government. Hospital infections, down to their lowest level, and mixed sex wards down by 94%. That is the record we have. 4,000 more doctors, almost 1,000 more midwives, and fewer managers. Now, he talks about what people think about this government. Let me just remind him what his two-time candidate said about him this week. You're not articulating a vision or a destination. You're not clearly identifying a course, and no one's following you. My problem is you're not a leader. I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In 2009, when the Conservatives took control of Lancashire County Council, fostering services were rated as unsatisfactory. Since then, their budget has reduced by £120,000 and they are now rated as outstanding. Would my right honourable friend join me in congratulating County Councillor Tony Winder and his Conservative colleagues at not only doing more for less, but doing it better as well? I certainly join my honourable friend, and he makes an important point, which is across the country you have different councils coping with the issues of fostering and adoption and producing very different results. And I think what we need to do is publish all of these figures so we can see which councils are doing well and getting value for money, as they clearly are in Lancashire, but above all, which families, which councils are really doing the best to get those children out of care and get them into a warm and loving home. Mrs Mary Glyndon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The national minimum wage has lifted millions of workers out of poverty pay. So will the Prime Minister support hard-working people and give a commitment today to drop unjust plans to freeze it? We, we support the minimum wage and we've supported its uprating and we have already uh, uprated it and I think it has a, a, an important role to play. Tony Baldry. Um, the children of Somalia should have an expectation of a life before death. And does not tomorrow's London conference give the opportunity to signal to the terrorists, the pirates and the corrupt of Somalia that we are all determined to do whatever we can to ensure stability and good governance in Somalia. And will the Prime Minister welcome the participation in that conference, the President of Somaliland, given Somaliland's experience of peace-building in the region? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful to my right honourable friend for raising this issue. We will be welcoming the President of Somaliland to the conference, and I think Somaliland has actually taken some important steps forward in showing that you can have better governments, better economic progress, and I think they are in many ways an example that others can follow. But this conference is not about recognising Somaliland, it's about trying to put in place the building blocks amongst the international community, but above all amongst the Somalis themselves, for a stronger and safer uh, Somalia. And that means taking action on piracy, it means taking action on hostages, it means taking action to support AMISOM and increase its funding and increase its role in Mogadishu, and it means working with all the parts of Somalia to try and give that country, which has been more blighted uh, by famine, by disease, uh, by terrorism, by violence than almost any other in the, in the world, to give that country a second chance. Field. Given what the Prime Minister said last week in Scotland, will he devote as much time to facing up to the grievances that the English feel from the current proposals of devolution as he will be giving to considering new proposals of devolution for Scotland, will he open a major debate here in the House on the English question so that members from all parts of the House can advise him on what measures of devolution England needs if we are to gain equity with other countries in the United Kingdom? We have obviously uh, set up the West Lothian uh, group to look at this issue, and obviously we want to make sure that devolution works for everyone in the United Kingdom, but I would part company slightly with the right honourable gentleman for this reason, that I believe the United Kingdom has been an incredibly successful partnership between all its members, and I think that actually far from wanting to appeal uh, to English people that in any way to sort of nurture a grievance they feel, I want to appeal to my fellow Englishmen to say this has been a great partnership, a great partnership for Scotland, but a great partnership for England too. Of course Scotland must make its choice, but we hope that Scotland will choose to remain in this partnership that has done so well for the last 300 years. 
Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, does the Prime Minister agree that an elected mayor, more power for cities, including over local railway infrastructure, presents a great opportunity for those of us in Bristol who have been long campaigning for a resurrection of local rail, including a Henbury Loop line round the north of the city? Yeah. Well, I, I do support having elected mayors in our great cities. Obviously, it is going to be for those cities themselves to choose. I'm hugely encouraged by what uh, has happened in Liverpool recently. We'll be having these uh, referenda, and people in Bristol will have the, the chance to make that choice. But at the same time, uh, what people I think haven't entirely noticed is the government is going through a huge act of devolution to cities in terms of the powers and the money that we're prepared to offer them so that they can build their own futures. If you think of how Bristol, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, how these great cities actually built themselves up in the first place, it wasn't on order and instruction from London. It was the great city figures that did that for them. We want again. Tom Blenkinsop. On Tuesday, the Education Secretary said the Prime Minister's decision to set up the Leveson Inquiry is having a chilling effect upon the freedom of expression. Does the Education Secretary speak for the Government? Um, the point I make is this. It was right to set up the Leveson Inquiry, and that is a decision fully supported by the entire Government. But I, I do think that uh, my right hon. Friend is making an important point, which is even as this inquiry goes on, we want to have a vibrant press that feels it can call uh, the powerful to account, and we don't want to see it chilled, in any, although sometimes one may, one may feel some advantage in having it being chilled. That is not what we want. Angie Bray. Uh, many of my constituents will be fully supportive of the Chancellor's refusal yesterday to sign off on the EU accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Does the Prime Minister agree with me and my constituents that it is totally unacceptable that for 17 years now they have failed to get auditors to sign off on their accounts? Yeah. I, I think my honourable friend raises an important point. It wasn't just Britain that took this stand, it was also the Dutch and the Swedes as well. I think for too long these accounts haven't been properly dealt with and corruption and fraud hasn't been properly dealt with and it's entirely right to make this stand. Mr Angus Brendan McNeil. Thank you very much Mr Speaker. Last week in Edinburgh the Prime Minister said there were more powers on the table for Scotland but couldn't name any. A few months ago he mocked the idea of Scotland controlling its own oil wealth. In the Scotland bill even the Crown estate was too big. Can the Prime Minister now name one power that he has on his mind from this latest U-turn? I didn't think that the Scottish National Party favoured devolution. I thought they favoured separation. Yet as soon as you're offered a referendum that gives you the chance to put that in front of the Scottish people, you start running away. Dr Julian Huppert. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Tomorrow, members of this House will have the chance to debate the importance of cycling following the Time Cities Fit for Cycling campaign. The Minister for Cycling, the member for Lewis, has made some welcome announcements and investment. There is still much more to do. Will the Prime Minister commit the Government to support the Times campaign, increase investment in cycling and take much greater steps to promote cycling across the country? I think the Times campaign is an excellent campaign. I strongly support what they're trying to do. Anyone who's got on a bicycle, particularly in one of our busiest busier cities knows that you are taking your life into your hands every time you do so and so we do need to do more to try and make cycling safer the government is making it easier for councils to install mirrors at junctions we're putting 11 million pounds into training for children and 15 million pounds for better cycle routes and facilities across the country i think if we want to encourage the growth in cycling we've seen in recent years we need to get behind campaigns like this Jenny mctaggart since he has been prime minister a free. The company A4 
has won contracts from the DWP alone worth $224 million. In view of the fact that there are record numbers of unemployed people and that employees of this company have been arrested, what action is he taking to make sure that neither vulnerable unemployed people nor the taxpayer are victims of fraud by A4E? Yeah. Uh, the Honourable Lady raises an important issue. Uh, and I understand this issue actually dates back two years to schemes run by the previous government. And it was, as I understand it, it was the company itself that raised the issue with the relevant authorities. Now, there's an ongoing police investigation, so it would be inappropriate for me to comment uh, much further. All I'd say is the investigation needs to be thorough, it needs to get to the truth, and then we can take into account its findings. Priti Patel. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Generations of young people have benefited from work experience schemes through getting an experience of the work working world. Yes. Does the Prime Minister, will the Prime Minister praise those companies who will do everything they possibly can to encourage work experience schemes, unlike the militant hard left who would not only shut down these schemes, but would rather see people get a hand out as opposed to a hand up in life? Yeah. I think the Honourable Lady will speak for many in this House and I think overwhelming majority of this country who think that companies offering work experience schemes to those on unemployment benefit is a thoroughly good thing. Yeah. And Let's be clear, these young people, it is not a compulsory scheme, it is a scheme that young people ask to go on. And the findings are that around half of them are actually getting work at the end of these schemes. Now, that is a far better outcome than the Future Jobs Fund, and at about a twentieth of the cost. So I think we should encourage companies and encourage young people to expand work experience, because it gives people the chance of seeing work and all that it involves, and gives them a better chance to get a job. Graham Jones. Prime Minister, there are thousands of BAE workers um, right across Lancashire in every constituency concerned and angry about the um, Eurofighter Indian contract. Earlier this week you held a meeting with Lancashire's Tory MPs. When will you be arranging a meeting at 10 Downing Street for all Lancashire MPs? Something to hide. I'm not arranging any meetings at 10 Downing Street, but it's possible the Prime Minister might. We'll hear. Prime Minister. I'm very happy. I've met with a number of members of Parliament who have BAE in their constituencies, including the Honourable Member for Hull, who, who came to see me with the uh, Honourable Member for uh, Booth Ferry at the same time. So I had, I've had many MPs coming to see me. But this government is absolutely committed to helping with Eurofighter, with Typhoon, in every way that we can. That is why I've been undertaking trips right across the Middle East. And let me say, when I do, I often get criticised by Labour MPs for taking BAE or taking Rolls-Royce on the aeroplane. I think it's right to fly the flag for great British businesses, and I'll continue to do so. Mr Peter Bone. Ah. Mr Speaker, last week at the breakfast table... Mrs Bone was saying how she knew the Prime Minister wanted to deport the terrorist Abu Qudaba straight away and put the national interest first. But she about the views of Mrs Bone. But she knew it was being blocked by the Deputy Prime Minister and the Liberal Democrats. Suddenly, our eleven year old son Thomas asked. Is Nick Clegg a goodie or a baddie? What does the Prime Minister think? Um, there's only so much detail I can take from the Bone household, but um, 
in believing that I am very keen that Abu Qatada should be deported, uh, Mrs Bone is indeed psychic. That is exactly what I believe. That is why the Home Secretary and Home Office Ministers are working so hard with the Jordanians to get the assurances that we need so that this can indeed take place. And the Deputy Prime Minister thoroughly backs that approach. Jack Trumey. Uh, Mr Speaker, both the Prime Minister and the Housing Minister have told the House that rents are falling in the private rented sector when the evidence is that rents are rising, including from the most recent survey by Inside Housing. Will the Prime Minister now take this opportunity to put the record straight, or will he continue to blame the tenant when the real responsibility lies with landlords charging ever higher rents and the failure of his government's house-building programme. I I have to say, coming from a party that saw house-building fall to its lowest level since the 1920s, I I think I'll take that with a lorry load of salt. Stephen Metcalf. Thank you, Mr Speaker. We have put great effort into uh, stamping out and kicking out racism in football in this country. When my right honourable friend brings together the sport later on today, will he assure the House that he will do everything he can to ensure that prejudice does not creep back into the game and that racism stays out of football? I think my honourable friend is entirely right to raise this issue. It was a a huge achievement where Britain uh, and its football authorities and football clubs actually led the world in kicking racism out of football, something that hasn't happened in all other countries. It is worrying some of the recent signs that we've seen. Why I think this matters so much, not just to football, but also to government and to everyone in our country, is because football and footballers are role models to young people. What people see on the football pitch, they copy when they go and learn to play football themselves, which I think it's important to bring people together and make sure we kick racism out of football for good. Uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Could I first of all associate myself with the Prime Minister's condolences to the member of the Armed Forces who lost his life in the last week? And I'm sure the Prime Minister would like to join me in thanking the thousands of people who serve in the reserved Armed Forces. However, would he agree with me that it's inappropriate, unsatisfactory and perhaps even arrogant that when constituents who serve in the reserved Marine Forces in Dundee, in my constituency, express concerns about the possible closure of that detachment, I write to the Ministry of Defence and they refuse to give me a definitive answer. Well, I I certainly thank the Honourable Gentleman for raising again the the case of of, uh, the brave man from the RAF Regiment who gave his life and all those who serve in Afghanistan. And he's absolutely right that the reserve forces in our country are a huge national asset. We want to see them expanded, and we put over a billion pounds into that expansion between now uh, uh, and 2015 to make sure that we can do that. In terms of the Dundee Royal Marine Reserve headquarters, no decision has been taken on its future. There's no intention to cut the number of Royal Marine Reservists in Scotland. If you look across Scotland at the whole issue of our armed forces, and reservists, we actually need more people to join the reserves. I hope that everyone in this House who, who likes our territorial army and other reserve forces will actually back the recruitment campaigns, because if we're going to move to an army of 80,000 regulars and 40,000 reservists, we need a cultural step change in our country where we really respect what our TA and other reserve forces are doing. Joseph Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. US Marshals will on Friday escort my 65-year-old constituent Chris Tappin from Heathrow to a jail in Texas, where he will face pressure to plea bargain in order to avoid lengthy incarceration 
pending a financially ruinous trial for a crime he insists he did not commit. Could the Prime Minister say what steps he is considering to reform the US-UK extradition treaty that's been so, un so unfair to the likes of Gary McKinnon and now my constituent, Mr Tappin? Yeah, well, I, I quite understand why my honourable friend raises this uh, case of his constituent. I mean, let me say, in the case of Chris Tappin, obviously he has been through a number of processes, including the Magistrates' Court and the High Court, and the Home Secretary has thoroughly considered his case. He raises the point more generally of Sir Scott Baker's report into the extradition arrangements, which he's made and we're now considering. He did not call for fundamental reform, but my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, is going to carefully examine his findings and also take into account the views of Parliament that have been expressed in recent debates. Of course, balance in these arrangements is absolutely vital, but I think it is important that at the same time, we remember why we enter into these extradition treaties, which is to show respect to each other's judicial processes and make sure that people who are accused of crimes can be tried for those crimes, and Britain can benefit from that as well. So a proper, sober, thoughtful review needs to take place, and this case shows why. Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The government response to the unfair relationship between pub companies and their licensees so far has been self-regulation, not statutory regulation. On January the 12th of this year, this House voted unanimously to set up a review panel to be agreed by the Business Select Committee to review the implementation of self-regulation. To date, there has been absolutely no response from the Government. Can the Prime Minister tell me, is he back in the will of Parliament or the will of pub companies? Well, I'm a keen supporter of Britain's pubs, so I will write to the Honourable Gentleman and get him a good answer. Mike Crockart. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In his um, speech made in Edinburgh last week, the Prime Minister rightly described Scotland as a pioneering country all its life and a turbine hall of the Industrial Revolution. The next pioneering revolution in this country will be in green technology, and the Green Investment Bank will be key in its promotion. Having now visited Edinburgh, does he agree with me that it is the perfect location for this institution? It is certainly one of the locations that's being considered, but I think he will know there are a number of uh, bids that have also been made from different towns, cities and indeed regions of the country that all want to uh, host this excellent innovation, the Green Investment Bank. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 15. Can I ask the Prime Minister, returning to the issue of the NHS and the pertinent question posed by the Leader of the Opposition, why has the Prime Minister broken his promise not to engage in another top-down reorganisation of the National Health Service? Yeah. What we are doing is abolishing the bureaucracy that has been holding the NHS back. We are going to be cutting, in this Parliament, £4.5 billion of bureaucracy by getting rid of the Primary Care Trust and the Strategic Health Authorities all of which will be invested into patient care. Now, his own party's policy is to say that real increases in NHS spending are, and I quote, irresponsible. That is the view of his party. Well, we don't think it's irresponsible. We think it's responsible. That's why we're putting the money in and he'd take the money out. There have been lots of interruptions today, but I'm concerned about the interests of backbenchers. Harriet Baldwin. Yeah. Mr Speaker, last week in Ethiopia with Save the Children, I saw at first hand how malnutrition is stunting the growth of the world's poorest children. 
Does the Prime Minister agree that the UK has a real opportunity to lead the international debate in tackling malnutrition, which will help the growth of the world's children and economic growth yeah. as well? Yeah. I think the Honourable Lady is entirely right uh, about this, not only because uh, we work with excellent organisations, NGOs like Save the Children, that are doing such excellent work, but also the UK is the second largest a bilateral donor into the Horn of Africa, where we've seen this appalling famine and so many people starving and dying. So I think not only are we doing our bit in terms of in money, investment and time, but also it gives us an opportunity to lead the debate on where we need to take the development and aid agenda next. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.